Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMG Health Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia, And today, I'm pleased to bring you a conversation on the important topic of men's health with a focus on erectile dysfunction, otherwise known as ED. This podcast has been sponsored by Viatris. Joining me for today's discussion are two experts in the field, both of whom are keen to offer their perspectives on the root causes, impacts, and unmet needs in this disease area. First, we have Professor Anna Maria Giraldi, who's a senior consultant in psychiatry and sexological clinic at the Psychiatric Center Copenhagen, and she's a professor of clinical sexology at the University of Copenhagen. Clinically, Professor Giraldi works with men, women, and couples with sexual dysfunction, and she's also worked within transgender care. She has also published more than 100 papers, editorials, and book chapters in the field of male and female sexual medicine. Welcome, Dr. Giraldi. Thank you for having me here. So you're very welcome, and we uh, we fill out our faculty with uh, a welcome to Dr. Emmanuel Angelo Francesco Giannini, full professor of endocrinology, andrology, and sexual medicine at the Department of Systems Medicine, University of Rome, Tor Vergata, in Italy, of course. Professor Giannini's scientific activity is, is reflected in 230 papers published in peer-reviewed international journals. His main research interests are sexual medicine, and andrology. Professor Yannini, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, everybody. It's a pleasure being here. So it's fantastic. We've got a truly international group. And I'm going to start with you, Professor Emmanuel Yannini. Let's first of all ensure we're calling things by the right names. Can you please provide the definition and prevalence of erectile dysfunction? According to an historical definition published in the early 1990s in a consensus conference in the National Institute of Health, NIH, erectile dysfunction, or ED, signifies the inability of the male to attain and maintain erection of the penis sufficient to permit satisfactory sexual intercourse. People not completely fulfilling this definition but having troubles with erection are affected by subclinical ED, another taxonomic entity later introduced by my research group. ED and subclinical ED are common male disorders whose incidence and prevalence are strongly associated with age and health status. The crude incidence of ED varies widely among studies. New cases ranging from 19 to 66 cases per thousand males here. Similarly, the prevalence of ED varies based on age. The Massachusetts Male Aging Study, the seminal epidemiological study, showed a combined prevalence of mild to moderate ED of 52% of men aged 40 to 70 years. ED was strongly linked to age, health status, and emotional factors. Conversely, the European Male Aging Study, the largest European multicenter population-based study of males aged between 40 to 79 years, reported a prevalence of ED 
ranging from 6 to 64%. This depends on the different age subgroups and increased with age, with an average prevalence of 30%. The prevalence of ED seems higher in the USA and the Eastern and Southeastern Asian countries, compared to Europe and South America. The prevalence of ED also varies according to the ethnicity. Hispanic males had increased odds of moderate to severe ED, while black males were less likely to report severe ED. The prevalence of ED among different racial and ethnic groups is likely the result of complex phenomena and depends upon the interplay of self-perception, socioeconomic, demographic, cultural and lifestyle characteristics. So, well, thank you very much for that. I mean, those statistics are, you know, this is obviously a very common uh, problem. Professor Anna-Maria Giraldi, can you address the burden of erectile dysfunction, ED, not just on the man, but on the couple's health? Yeah, um, it of course depends on the couple, but for most couples, the burden might be quite high uh, because there may be a disruption in the sex lives that they had previously in the couple. Uh, the man can maybe avoid sex, be frustrated, angry or sad or get performance anxiety and also lose sexual desire. And he might also think that his partner does not deserve him anymore. And the partner, on the other hand, may think that something is wrong with him or her and think that their partner has found another sex partner or start blaming the partner or be sad or angry. And all this may lead to conflicts, difficulties of communication and decreasing the quality of the re relationship and their life. So um, thank you very much for that. And Emmanuel Giannini, do, do you have anything to add on this, uh, this aspect? Oh, yes, uh, definitely. Uh, the, the real question, uh, after the uh, very nice insights we received from uh, Professor Giraldi, is, uh, is ED a couple symptom? And the answer is definitely yes. And uh, this should be carefully considered when dealing with ED. Couple-based approaches to managing sexual dysfunction have long been, in fact, advocated by renewed sexual health researchers and therapists. And this is because how ED may dramatically affect the couple's health is very well known. It is not only the male affected by ED. While he may experience a number of psychopathological effects, including anxiety and depression, which are the most frequent, female partners are deeply affected by the lack of an erection, which is frequently, but not always correctly, perceived as a lack of male sexual appeal, sexual appeal and desire. Hence, the lowering of personal and reciprocal esteems and again, anxiety and depression could produce a specific burden in couples' health. But this is not true only in heterosexual couples. It, it has been also evidenced in homosexual couples where, in the same manner as for heterosexual couples, ED negatively impacts the quality of the relationship. Furthermore, meta-analysis of the available data has found that homosexual orientation is associated with 1.5-fold higher odds of recording ED 
likely due to their minority stress. So I want to ask both of you to speak about the root causes of ED. Emmanuel Janini, you've got an interesting way of describing it, a, a cast of characters, if you will. <laughs> yes. In fact, we have four people reducing, if not affecting, the ability to obtain and maintain direction. There is the plumber, who represents the atherosclerotic endothelial dysfunction, which is the most frequent type. The second is the electrician, who represents the central and peripheral neurological damage, from Parkinson's disease to prostatic surgery, to mention the most frequent. The third is the chemist, who represents the endocrinological and metabolic etiologies like hypogonadism and diabetes. Finally, there is the bad doctor. It is the iatrogenic factor. This is both pharmacological, such as antipsychotic and antidepressants, and surgical, like pelvic surgeries, and the head shrinker, who represents the intrapsychic and the relational risk factors. Most of these causes are closely connected, directly or indirectly, to lifestyle. Hence, the most frequent main reason for having ED, like smoking, physical inactivity, poor eating habits and disorders, as well as the abuse of alcohol and substances are also the main causes of the four plus one classical non-communicable chronic diseases, NCDs, such as cardiovascular, metabolic, respiratory and oncological diseases, plus the neuropsychiatric one, which was recently added to that list. Thus, the root causes of ED are cardiovascular, neurological, endocrine, metabolic, systemic, iatrogenic, intrapsychic, or relational. It's a fantastic way of thinking about it, and I'm sitting here uh, smiling and taking copious notes. So, Professor Anna-Maria Giraldi, anything to expand on here? Yeah, uh, the non-communicable diseases, such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and then also depression, and we can also add anxiety, performance anxiety, stress and worries, or lack of time with the partner, relationship problems, and some medications, as mentioned by Dr. Giannini, and also smoking and alcohol are risk factors. So I'd like to ask both of you to address the association between erectile dysfunction, ED, and cardiovascular disease. It's been mentioned but let's expand a little bit. Professor Giraldi, please go first. Yes, often it is. Uh, we know that males who are admitted to hospital due to cardiac, cardiac ischemic problems often had ED before they had their ischemic problems. And all cardiovascular diseases can cause erectile dysfunction and also be an early indicator as well as diabetes can. Professor Giannini, do you want to jump in? Oh, yes, it will be logical to consider erectile dysfunction as the perfect early biomarker of cardiovascular diseases, as largely demonstrated by epidemiological studies. In particular, ED could be considered as the classic canary in the coal mine, thanks to the particular ability to occur earlier as consequence of unhealthy lifestyle with respect to the cardiovascular function. 
In fact, the vessel feeding the high oxygen need of the corpora cavernosa are characterized by a very small diameter, much smaller than the coronaries. The vessels are considered at high risk of atherosclerotic degeneration due to their small caliber. Also, for this reason, the vascular ED may predict an advanced major adverse cardiovascular events of MACE. For example, it is well known that dyslipidemia is clearly associated with MACE. Considering that ED is another well-known risk factor for MACE, association between the two conditions have been deeply investigated. An association between ED and the dyslipidemia has been evident since the last decades in the past century, thanks to the seminal study of Feldman et al. in a court of 1,290 men enrolled in MMS, I mentioned before. In fact, in the cross-sectional analysis of the MMIS cohort, the probability of ED ranges from 7 to 25% when HDL cholesterol decreases from 90 to 30 mg DL. In a later uh, longitudinal study from a cohort of uh, 3,250 Texan males Without a D, a study at a study entry, it has been demonstrated that after a mean 22 months of follow-up, a 39 mg DL increase in total cholesterol or in HDL cholesterol was associated with a change of 1.32 and 0.38 times in the risk of ED, even after adjusting for other IED determinants, in particular total cholesterol plus 240 mg DL or an HDL cholesterol less than 30 mg DL double the risk of ED. Finally, ED is to be considered a harbinger of MACE and it is now included in the algorithm of risk prediction of cardiovascular events. Considering that lowering lipid medication can substantially decrease the cardiovascular risk and even ameliorate ED, it is imperative for clinicians dealing with ED to obtain a full lipid profile in any ED patients and to treat any dyslipidemia accordingly. So, Professor Giannini, continuing with you, What's the unmet medical need in the diagnosis of erectile dysfunction? Well, in the majority of the cases, ED appears as a medical symptom, vascular, endocrine, neurological, and iatrogenic, frequently with mixed risk factors. And it is rarely surgical in nature, but with a psychological and relational comorbidity, it is almost unavoidable. For these reasons, Diagnosis, management, and follow-up of patients with and carpos affected by ED appear relatively complex. They deserve a renewed effort and the implementation of the personal diagnostic skills of doctors dealing with ED. A diagnostic algorithm should always include three main personal tools and a limited number of mechanical instruments. The personal tools are the ears, 
to carefully listen the medical and sexual history of the patient and, when possible, that of the partner, as well their expectation. The eyes. To read the results of the psychometric tools, such as the International Index of Erectile Function, IAF, which is essential for the assessment of the severity of ED. The ends to discover signs of all diseases that might increase the risk of having ED. And finally, the brain, to integrate all the data collected in order to produce a diagnosis. There are just two medical instruments that can be used for the diagnosis of ED. The laboratory, for assessment of glycemic and lipid profile, as well as the determination of serum testosterone. And for the patients with cardiovascular risk, the basal dynamic eco-color Doppler with intracavernous injection of prostaglandin in the penis to assess both the arterial and the venous supply of the penis. A number of second-level examinations are usually performed by the specialist on the basis of the data collected. In every medical situation, we must discuss the role of healthy lifestyle choices. What can men do to lead a healthier life that will reduce or mitigate symptoms of ED? Professor Giraldi, would you like to go first? And then Professor Giannini will have you jump in with your thoughts. It is very important. Smoking causes cardiovascular disease and therefore also erectile dysfunction. And obesity is also a risk factor, both directly and through diabetes. Studies shows that exercising four times a week will reduce erectile dysfunction symptoms. Also, too much alcohol will damage the erectile capacity. So sedentary lifestyles that include consuming too much food, alcohol and smoking will increase the risk of ED substantially. And Professor Giannini, uh, your comments. I completely agree with Anna Maria, but I have to add that a physician dealing with the subjects seeking medical care for ED should be aware that an adequate tailored therapy should be based on an adequate counseling, which is the cornerstone for the success of any sexual treatment. Lifestyle modification and the optimization of comorbidities must be an essential, indispensable part of the therapeutic strategy. In a trial specifically designed to test the effects of intensive lifestyle changes, including advice on the Mediterranean diet to obtain weight loss in 35 males suffering from ED, a significant improvement of the IAF score was observed after two years of significant weight loss. Many other studies later confirmed those findings. A sedentary lifestyle doubled the risk of having ED, whereas physical activity has been identified as the strongest lifestyle factor associated with improved erectile function. Evidence suggests that the leading mechanism through which physical activity improves ED are weight loss and increased endothelial nitrocyte production. The implementation of physical activity in males with ED ameliorates endothelial dysfunction and vascular inflammation, thus resulting in 4.0-point improvement in the IAF5 score. Smoking tobacco 
as Anna Maria said, has been robustly and definitively demonstrated as a major cause of non-communicable chronic diseases. But it's also negatively associated with ED and impaired sperm, sperm parameters. The MMS reported that the cigarette smoking doubled the risk of developing ED, while a systematic review showed a difference of 12.4% of the proportion of smokers between males with ED and the general population, 27.7%. Other meta-analyses agree that the current smoking behavior is associated with ED in a dose-dependent and duration manner, and that the past use of cigarettes increased the risk of ED when compared with never smoking. Quitting smoking and illegal drugs appear. At the end of the day, the pivotal strategy to improve male sexual function together with a stronger moderation of the use of the alcohol. Finally, finally note that the prescription of effective drugs to improve the erectile function should not be considered as an alternative to the lifestyle changes. On the contrary, the prescription of a powerful pharmacological treatment must, must be considered as motivational to change one's lifestyle and the way, on the wave of the therapeutic success. That's, that's absolutely fascinating data. Thank you for that, both of you. So, a healthy sex life usually implies a partner. What's their role in men seeking diagnosis and management of erectile dysfunction? Professor Giannini, would you like to go first? Yes. Uh, the option of involving the partner in the process of care is based on the classical psychosexological perspective of considering the couple as the real part patient when addressing sexual symptoms. In fact, involving the partner could ameliorate both the diagnostic effort and the therapeutic output in both sexual counseling and pharmacological management of erectile dysfunction. Ideally, when a patient agrees, the involvement of the partner could be tremendously useful, both for the diagnosis and for the improvement of the so-called therapeutic alliance, which reinforces the effectiveness of the prescription. However, this is not always possible, and the physicians should frankly discuss this point with the patient. This for two reasons. Firstly, the single population is currently increasing in Western society. A couple-based sexology may therefore be inadequate. Secondly, several male patients in the case of ED, but also in other sexual dysfunction, dislike sharing with the partner either the visit with the sexual physician or the psychosexology, as well as the therapeutic choices. This option should be respected. So, Anna-Maria Giraldi, can you, can you provide us your thoughts, agreements, disagreements? Yeah, I'll be happy to. I, I think it is important to involve the partner if possible, because the partner can be very supportive and needs to be as sex is often between people, or most of the time between two people. And if the partner is supportive, there's a higher chance of a good treatment. And if the partner is against the treatment, afraid of it, or does not want to have sex, uh, it's, it's difficult to find a good success rate with the treatment. Any healthcare discussion these days has to include the COVID-19 perspective. How have sexual health problems, their presentation, prevalence, diagnosis, management, and, and follow-up, 
been impacted by the pandemic? Anna-Maria, you want to go first? Yeah, I would be happy to. Uh, it seems that COVID-19 has affected people's sex life in many different ways. Uh, most people without a partner have experienced that they have less sexual activity as it has been difficult to meet potential partners due, the, uh, due to the restrictions. And we have also seen that sexual frequency for most people has dropped. In couples, uh, some have experienced an increased intimacy and quality of sex, while others have had more conflicts and decreased satisfaction and sexual desire. And if people have been depressed or very anxious, this has also have had a negative impact on sexual health. So there are many different ways it has um, affected people's sexual life. So the simple answer is it's not simple. Uh, Emmanuel Giannini, do you want to um, jump in and provide your perspectives? Yes, yes. Uh, COVID-19 is a typical viral and obviously transmissible disease that impacts personal and social behavior. In other words, lifestyle plays a major role. In fact, the clinical impact of the COVID-19 is largely based on age, and on the presence of comorbidities with chronic non-communicable diseases being first. These are also largely dependent of the lifestyle as mentioned before. Finally, the seriousness of long COVID itself is very frequently proportional to the presence and to the severity of non-communicable chronic diseases. These findings are highly relevant in the context of sexual medicine, owing to the, to the shared risk factors for sexual dysfunction, particularly concerning ED and COVID-19. Several factors could contribute to the onset of sexual health issues in COVID-19 patients, including endothelial dysfunction, prolonged hypoxia due to pulmonary impairment, anxiety, depression, and endocrine disorders. We demonstrated, in fact, that ED increases the risk of being infected by severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, and that the reverse is also true. COVID-19 disease itself may reduce the ability to obtain or maintain an erection. Furthermore, we recently defined sexual long COVID SLC syndrome, which may not only have a pathophysiological and taxonomic value, but could also act as a biomarker of the clinical impact of the general long COVID syndrome. As ED is a widely accepted clinical biomarker of cardiovascular and general health, it makes sense to hypothesize SLC as a clinical biomarker of long COVID, once again highlighting the relevance of sexual function outside the boundaries of sexual medicine. Another possible merit of the taxonomic introduction of the sexual long COVID, SLC, could be educational. It is well known that arguments related to sexual health may have a much higher psychological impact on shifting from wrong behavioral habits to healthy lifestyle. This is particularly true for young people, a group particularly interested in sexual health and unfortunately still reluctant to vaccinate. The ghost of SLC may help in the double effort to educate people to get vaccinated and to improve healthy behavior, 
Novax Nosex, who would become a tremendously powerful and motivational claim. Tell me, is it your advice that people plan their sexual activities, taking into consideration the pharmacological behavior of the various medications, plus the need for spontaneity and intimacy? I'm sure you've both got some very useful perspectives. Professor Giannini, please make the first comments, and then Professor Giraldi, you jump in and take us further. Well, type 5 phosphodiesterase inhibitors are powerful and efficient drugs with an excellent tolerability profile. Some of them have been studied into an enormous number of patients in almost all countries on the planet. However, according to the pharmacokinetic profile, they may need about 60 minutes to reach the the maximal circulating concentration. Few patients and couples may consider planning sexual activity as unnatural and potentially affect the spontaneity of the intercourse. However, counseling may help in facing the need for planning to have a better sexual experience. For example, consumption of the drug on an empty stomach and without alcohol increases the speed to reach the maximal concentration and the onset of the clinical effect. Moreover, the currently available oral dispersible form, consumed without water, is appreciated by doctors and patients to have a better sexual experience. Anna Maria? Yeah, I have a very short answer. Uh, if the patients have sexual problems, then yes, I recommend that they plan their sexual experience. And additionally, I I also uh, advise that they should focus on intimacy and not only on intercourse and orgasm. Yeah, that's that's excellent, excellent advice. So, folks, it, it makes sense for us to close out with some takeaway messages for our healthcare professional audience. What would you recommend? Uh, actually, Emmanuel Giannini, you go first. Well, in a recent revision of the process of care model for the management of ED, It has been stated that it is effective management could be achieved only through a combination of patient risk factor modification and first-line therapies, such as the phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitor. This is always coupled with counseling and, in selected patients, with psychotherapy to address any patient comorbidities known to be associated with ED. Hence, I would stress in my take-home message the need for a careful and expert diagnosis in the light of the system sexology. This considers the symptom as the result of complex social, environmental, cultural, educational, and psychological factors coupled with the body and these dysfunctions. This defines the treatment goals that must be individualized to restore sexual health and satisfaction to the patient and or the couple and to improve quality of life based on the expressed needs and desires. Thank you. It's it's very thorough. And uh, fittingly, um, Anna Maria, the last words go to you. What are your take-home messages? Thank you. I have a few take-home messages. Uh, uh, the first of them is that sexual health is important for most people, for both males and females and for young and old. 
And then sexual problems could be a marker of underlying diseases or health problems. So it is so important that we talk about sexuality with our patients to identify other non-communicable diseases and also to give the best treatment as sex is important to the patient in many cases. That's wonderful and, and very, very strong and useful messages. So thank you very much. That, that concludes our, our discussion for today. I'd like to thank Professor Giraldi and uh, Giannini for joining me today and sharing your incredible insights around the causes, impact and treatment of erectile dysfunction with our audience. Thank you for having me. It has been a real pleasure being here. Thank you so much. So, folks, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or at EMG Health. We release a new episode every Friday as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.